0: Father, Lord, we thank you that you are not, are not a silent God, but you are a God who has spoken and that you are a God who continues to speak through your word here. And We need to hear what you have to say to us. Uh, it is very much life. Uh, it is the way of transformation. It is the way that we understand your grace and mercy in Jesus who was crucified and risen for us. We pray that we would not just hear words about him this morning, but that we would hear him. That we would hear the the your spirit here also, and that you would be glorified and magnified as you are increasing our faith, as you are transforming us more into the image of your son. We pray this in, in his name. Amen. We're going to read from Romans 8, verses 1 through 17 this morning. We're... Finishing up this mini-series as we're, we're kind of in, in between some things here on the Holy Spirit. And we've looked at how the Spirit before is a Spirit of truth. We looked last week at the Spirit of life. Today, we're going to look at how He is a Spirit of freedom. And from we're going to see this from Romans 8, verses 1-17. through 17. This is the Word of God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Everyone has other people in their backgrounds and their lives today who have shaped them. Maybe you can think for a moment, who are some of the people whom you have had a hand in your life and how you live and how you understand the world today? It could be a friendship. It could be a relative. It could be someone who has influenced you in some way and played a formative role. Maybe even just simply briefly. But sometimes it's also negative. Someone who has done something to you or shown you what happens when you go down a particular road. Or consider the patterns of family history. We grow up under the influence of our parents, who grew up under the influence of their parents, and so on. The point is that who we are today, how we live, how we think, how we emote, how we relate to others, how we respond to certain situations, has been deeply affected by a hidden web of relationships. That is unseen and lies behind us. It forms a sort of unseen reality of, of, uh, uh, that, that lies, lies behind everyone that you meet. And even though you may not see it, or the person themselves or you might not even recognize or understand it in the moment, that unseen reality behind there, that web of relationships, has a profound meaning for your everyday life. And it's the same with the Holy Spirit. Our relationship with him is instrumental in forming the hidden reality behind those who are in Jesus. We are spiritually united to Christ. That's a capital S spiritually. We can't see it. We may not recognize it. Or we may not even fully understand it either. But that mysterious bond of the Spirit, though, who connects us to Jesus makes all the difference. It's the relationship that we cannot miss because it changes how we see ourselves. It changes how we see others, the world, and the trajectories of all three of those. And just as there's a value in studying our own family histories, we gain insight into um, those who have played a role in affecting who we are today. Similarly, it's worth exploring the Spirit more here. Studying the Spirit shouldn't invite us into navel-gazing or idle speculation or just simply leading to immense impracticalities, but we begin to better understand His work in us. Even though we may not see Him, and maybe we not, are not even cognizant of Him all the time, but we begin to see our life, though, in relation to Him and are the life in Jesus Christ that he seals us into. And if we understand his work, the work of the Spirit, and who he is for us and in us at every moment of our lives in Christ, then the triune God then becomes so much more beautiful. And not just the Spirit, and not just Jesus, but the Father also. And seeing how all three of them relate to one another and bring us into life. And so what we're going to focus on today as we close out this all-too-brief series is how the Spirit is the Spirit of freedom. The Spirit sets us free in Jesus Christ to a new way of living. And the first way we see that is by the Spirit, we are free from condemnation. Now, here we are in Romans chapter 8, and just prior to this point in Romans, the Apostle Paul has written about this existential feeling of being entrapped by sin, of doing what he ends up doing, of not wanting to do what he ends up doing in the flesh. And he just exasperated and he says, wretched man that I am. It's a cry that too often resonates with us, even believers at certain moments when we too do what we don't want to do. We don't want to be angry or yell at our kids or say certain things. We know it's not okay, but we feel powerless against it. Our lack of self-control despite our best resolve to not do it again. To turn back, though, to the sinful controlling impulses that we've used before. To drink. To porn. To late, waste hours on social media to numb us. And what is the resulting feeling? Guilt. Especially when we've tried so hard before being under the oppressive burden of guilt for the sins that we do, especially despite our best efforts to curb them. Or perhaps even feeling even more guilty because we didn't try hard enough. And living with this kind of guilt can be like being in a prison. Those words, wretched person that that I am, those words of Paul reverberate within the walls of the cell as if we're condemned to life in the dungeon where there seems to be no hope and no escape. There's nothing that we can do to break free from the prison of guilt because we've tried it before. But the walls are too thick. The bars are too firm. The lights are too dim. And so with our broken will, we languish under the sentence that we believe has been given to us. This is a sort of guilt and shame that paralyzes and instills fear in us. And it comes because we've tried to find life and acceptance before God by living according to the law. It's what Paul refers to in verse 2 as the law of sin and death, where we take the law of God, we take his good commands to us, and we follow them as a means of trying to attain life and status, thinking that God will accept me, or perhaps maybe even God will just love me a little bit more because of how well I follow his law. But if you've tried that, which I think we all have and still have that mindset from time to time, we know it doesn't work. Because if we really look at God's law and his demands with with honesty, it only shows us the various ways that we've actually failed. And the more we see our failures when we've really tried, we feel imprisoned by the guilt of condemnation by our failure to do it right this time. But that guilt and condemnation isn't just an existential feeling. We really do bear both of those if we take the way of the law of sin and death and use it as a way of finding our life. Why is it called the law of sin and death here? It's because it exposes our sin and our sinfulness and it leads us to only death. It reveals the extent of our sinfulness, of our two thin views of holiness, and of doing what is actually right before God who himself is holy and righteous. It's not because the law is bad in itself or, or wrong or that leads to, its de- to our death in itself. But it's how we use it. We misuse it as a way of finding life. Only discover that we've misread the map. It's been upside down. And we've trusted in our own mixed up navigational abilities. But still though, Paul is able to write these words in verse 1. These bold words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. That's a bold statement. How can he say that? How is this possible? The end there, in Christ Jesus. Living according to the law to find life and freedom from our condemnation is a losing proposition. In fact, the law could never be a means of life for us to follow after, if we truly understand it, and if we truly understand us. But even though the law cannot save us, God can, and God's provided that means. Verses three and four: What God has done in the flesh, uh, weak, or what God has done with what for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. And what did He do? He sent His Son in the flesh, flesh just like ours for our sin. Being like us, he could then stand in our place to be condemned for us. On the cross, he took our sin, which condemns us, and then he condemned it in turn. He put it to rest. He judged it and dealt with it in finality. And yet at the same time, the righteousness that the law requires for life, which is the reason why we've all tried to follow it in the first place It's given to us then. That righteousness is given to us. Jesus takes our sin and the Father condemned it. And then Jesus Christ gives us his righteousness and the Father commends us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But what does it mean to be in Christ? It means to be linked, to be bound, to be tightly connected so closely that the one is identified with the other. Being in Christ is being united with him in this close, intimate way. So closely that being in Christ, in a way, becomes who you are. And that union comes by the Spirit. The Spirit of life in Christ has set you free. In fact, in verse 9, it says, If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to him. But by implication... If you have the Spirit, then you have Christ in this uniting bond. If Jesus Christ is the one who is able to free us from guilt and condemnation, it's the Spirit then who comes within us and pulls us together to be in Him. You are, in, in, you are free in Christ by the Spirit. Because of the Spirit who unites you to Jesus in faith then those words in verse 1, there is therefore no condemnation, are yours. You are not condemned. God the Father doesn't look at you with condemnation, but he looks with you with commendation and with favor. You don't need to live as if you're guilty. Because if you do, you're reading your own self-loathing verdict back to God. God. But listen to those words. There is no common, or condemnation because your sin is dealt with in finality. And God doesn't see you as guilty. And for as long as the spirit of Christ is in you, as long as you are in Christ, and if you're bound to him by the spirit, the spirit will never leave you, then you will never be con- con- Condemned. There's no legal basis, there's no legitimate reason at all for anyone to condemn you, even if you have a difficult time reckoning with it your own self. In Christ, we are released from the prison of guilt. The Spirit busts a hole in the wall of that cell where we sat condemned, and he leads us out to freedom in Jesus. He grabs our hand, and he grabs the hand of Jesus, and he pulls us together, and he walks us out of that prison into freedom. But prisoners though sometimes have a hard time re-entering society, especially if they've been in prison for a long time. It's not easy adjusting to being free. And we've spent our if we spent our years following the law trying to get in God's good favor, then we may still follow the law again out of fear of being sent back to prison. And freedom isn't living out of fear. It's not living under the shadow of consequences. And so we see our second point about the freedom of the Spirit is by the Spirit, we are free to please God. We're free to please God. There is no condemnation as we live because the Spirit frees us to live in Christ and to please God through Him. We begin to learn how to live in freedom to God's law with the Spirit inside us and uniting us to Jesus. No, it's not freedom from the law. It's freedom to the law. We're freed to live according to it. Aren't we freed from the law of sin and death? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that we're free to do as we choose. Freedom isn't, be free, or freedom isn't being free of rules, at least if those rules are good. That's a, otherwise, it's a very poor view of freedom. But true freedom is living as we were meant to according to the best way possible, and especially if that way is a pattern of life for our good. And God's law is good. It's a a, a life of flourishing as he has intended it for us, to be lived with him and to be lived with one another. But the difference now is in how we follow it. Verse 2 sets forth this this contrasting way of living according to to the law of the spirit of life in Christ. We're freed from following it as a means of gaining life, but now in the spirit with Christ, we follow it as a way of life. We follow it as a lifestyle. It's not out of fear of being thrown back into prison, but it's in joy of our newfound freedom. In other words, we don't follow the law to attain life, but we, because we are already alive in Christ by the spirit. If you are in him, then there's a whole new way of life that you're now in. Jesus has lived the law perfectly and righteously for you. There is nothing that you can do to add to that. So now we're free to pursue after God as best as we can. Now with hearts that are empowered by the spirit within us. And in one sense, it takes all the pressure off. You're free to fail. That doesn't give you a license to fail. Sin is still sin. God still hates sin. And pleasing God still comes through following his law. But you know what? Your fate isn't determined though by your performance. You can chase after and follow God's law as best as you can. Not out of gaining favor, but just simply because he delights in you. It brings him joy. And the more that we live in in the spirit, his joy becomes our joy. We can please God when we live our new lives in Christ by the Spirit. Living according to the flesh, living in the old way, does not submit to God's law. It says it cannot. Paul says it's hostile, and those of the flesh cannot please God. But by implication, though, those living by the Spirit, those living according to the law of the Spirit in Christ, are able to please God. He frees us to obey, and he enables us to obey as he works within us. So that we see that we're not obligated to live according to our old ways anymore. In verse 12, we're not debtors to the flesh. We didn't get life by living this old way. And frankly, we would be foolish to think that going back would be any different. See, this is, though, what it means to live a transformed life. It's one that thinks less of ourselves and our desires and one that seeks to please God and his desires. It's a life of love, and it sees him as beautiful and more desirable than anything. It's a life that's lived empowered by the Spirit who unites us to Christ. But the third way that we see this freedom here, with the freedom that the Spirit gives, is by the Spirit, we are free from death. We're free from death. There is no condemnation for those who die in Christ because the Spirit who raised him dwells within us and will raise us too. Now, when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't do it all on his own. As the Son of God, that nature didn't die, but his humanity did, his true humanity did. And verse 11 says that it was the Spirit who raised his human body from the dead. And if the Spirit did that to Jesus' human body, then that same promise, though, is also now in store for those who are in Christ, for those who are in the Spirit. Because if you have the Spirit, then you are in Christ. You have Christ. You are united, bound to him, as we've said. And what he has is also yours. Everything he has is yours, including his resurrection life. In our house, most of the toys of our our kids all get thrown into a pile and shared between all three of them. They all, have the, they all have a few that they like to hang on to that we kind of say, that's yours, mostly to avoid fighting. But for the most part, what belongs to one very quickly belongs to all. And when the Spirit unites us to Jesus, what belongs to the Son also belongs to us. We come to the same pile, to the store of glory and life. And it's that's which, which is his, becomes ours. And this is why. Because those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. It says in verse 14, those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. And that doesn't mean that daughters become sons or that women become male. It's not affirming anything chauvinistic. It's, Paul's just simply using the language and the categories of his own common context, the Greco-Roman context and the language there, of his society that he lived in. And so in that sense, we read this, we can read this as children of God. But at the same time, though, there are a few subtleties that we miss if we only read this as children and we lose sight of the fact that it says sons. Because in Greco-Roman culture, in this time there, it was the sons who were the prime inheritors. Not saying that was okay, just saying that's how it was. So when Paul then refers to being sons by the Spirit, He's referring to inheritance. He's referring to being heirs of God. Given the inheritance by the father. But on an even deeper and more profound note. Whose inheritance? It's commonly held that son. When it says sons of God there is used deliberately. Because we are united to the son. We are counted as sons of God. Precisely because we are united to the Son of God. And that ought to blow us away. By the Spirit in Christ, we are not only heirs, we are co heirs with Christ, as it says. We stand to inherit what Jesus, the Son, inherits and receives. Not only resurrection life, but glory. He shares His glory with us, His kingdom and authority. We get to sit next to Him on thrones. So consider death, then, in light of being in the Spirit. It's not uncommon to be afraid of death. For many people, it represents the unknown. What is through that door in which I'm about to step through? But for those who are in Christ, those who are led by the Spirit, those who are sons and daughters of the Most High King, it is the doorway into glory. It's having run the race and crossed the finish line. And what's there but the crown of glory and life given to us by none other than Jesus the Son. He welcomes us into glory. He welcomes us into his kingdom. He shares what's his with us because he's now our older brother. And one day he will return and he'll share with us then his resurrection life in the flesh. So we often look at death all too often as a sign of condemnation. And to be certain, death came upon humanity as a curse. We as, as a human race are condemned to die as a whole because of sin and the fall. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, dying isn't a sign that you are condemned, because in Him there is resurrection, right? Death. The sign of humanity's condemnation as a whole has no hold. Death does not have the final say. And life in the spirit is living free from condemnation both now and condemnation to come. We live knowing that we have been set free from the prison of guilt. We don't have to continually look back. We don't have to to live in fear of being sent back into our old cells. And we can live right now with hope knowing that No matter what, we will never be condemned. That death is not a sign of God's displeasure or his disfavor. Resurrection is there waiting for us. And fourth, then, by the Spirit, with all of this, we are free from fear. By the Spirit, we are free from fear. There is no condemnation even as our fears may arise because the Spirit reminds us of our position in Christ. Now, how can all of this really be true? These are some some fantastical things that, that, that Paul's saying there, but that's not an uncommon question for us to ask. I think if we're honest, a lot of us have had fears or doubts or struggles in certain moments. We want to live free of condemnation. But we also live in fear of God, a deathly fear. I'm not referring to fear of God in the way that respects him for who he is, but a fear that is deathly afraid of taking any misstep, lest he become angry and toss us back into prison and to be condemned. The thing is that sometimes fear is irrational. A lot of us have irrational fears, and we even know that they're irrational. But we're still afraid. We might know that odds are there's nothing in the dark to get us. We might know that we're not going to fall off the edge of the Grand Canyon, but we're still afraid of standing up on the height. It's more than our minds that need convincing. We need that peace which settles us deep down. The same goes with our spiritual fears. We might have spoken that affirmation of faith this morning that God will not hold against me any of my sins. We might say that with our lips, but our hearts, though, might be anxious, wondering if that's really true for me. It might be true for other people, but is that true for me? How could it be true for me? That's the key issue for, for some of us. We may not disbelieve God and his promises, we may affirm them, but we might not be sure exactly if they really apply to us. And that only intensifies amid hardship and difficulty. How can I be an heir or a child of God if I'm facing financial loss or if my grandchild is gravely ill? Has God forgotten? And that's where Satan most frequently tempts us. There's a reason he's called the deceiver and the liar because that's what he does so well. And even when we're aware of his number one weapon, he's still able to to wedge it in the soft spots of our defenses feeding us lies that we're too far gone or that God doesn't love us or that in fact we do stand condemned and that's why this particular trial is coming upon us. He's so good at what he does and we're so helpless. But you know who isn't? The Spirit. And brothers and sisters, the Spirit of God bears a testimony that is far greater than any of the lies that Satan could ever feed us. I love this in verse 16, that he bears witness, the spirit of God bears witness with us that we are children of God. When we have a difficult time believing, he calms our souls with a testimony that comes from God himself, that in Christ we are children. We don't have to fear. Jesus Christ was condemned and crucified for sinners, for me. And has given me his perfect record. And so what therefore can separate us from the love of God. That is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Those are words that we need in our deepest moments of weakness. No condemnation but life. We are children. And God doesn't just call us children. He makes us children. He adopts us and becomes our father. Because he unites us to his son by the spirit. Who hasn't been moved by stories of adoption? Of people taking in children not their own from all sorts of circumstances and then bringing them into their own families, giving them a name, giving them all the rights and privileges as their own biological children, and loving them with the same love that will never depart from them. Where those children previously may... have been afraid and looking for acceptance from someone else and in some, some other way, now they have every reason to rest confidently in the love of their new parents. It's official. It's sealed. They're part of the family. And if those stories are powerful, how much more the story of God the Father adopting us out of slavery to sin and then giving us freedom as his very own children. Being brought then into a loving relationship that the Father has with His very Son, and then sharing that bond of love by the Spirit. If we believe that, why would we have any reason to fear? What could we do to make the Father cast us away? We don't have a Spirit who leads us back into living scared lives and trying fearfully to appease God and earn His favor. No, we are children. And as children, we have every right, every privilege, but every right to call God, it says, Abba, Aramaic for father in this most intimate way. Just as a small child would run up onto his dad's lap, give him a hug and say, you're my dad. Do you know you going to do that? None of this is saying that we won't ever be afraid. Of course we will. That's part of life. But when we are afraid, when we are anxious, when we are questioning, we can cry out to him as our dear dad, as Abba, Father. And he scoops us into his arms and he says, I love you. He hears us. And this is a testimony that the Spirit bears witness to within us in our moments of doubting and fear. Sometimes his testimony comes in the form of reminders of what's true. And sometimes those reminders bring us once again to walk through his open door, to go to him and bury our faces in his chest and just let it all out with sobbing. And God so graciously hears us and listens to us and then he speaks those words again. You're mine. I've adopted you by the, by the blood and the resurrection of Jesus my son to make you my son or daughter. And with that, I love you. Sometimes in our fears, that's the answer that we need the most. We might want reasons why certain trials are happening to us in that moment. But perhaps those answers to that question is too lofty or it's too deep for us. Perhaps what we what we need most are his words of love and belonging. And that he will never let go of us as his children. The spirit testifies to us in our unbelief. And as we come to the table, he does the same thing here. Uh, We are given the bread and the cup. We're given the body and blood of Christ, the emblems of his love for us at the cross. Where we were made free and pardoned. Where that proclamation can be had. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the Spirit reminds us once again here, even at this table, that we don't have to fear. He works through these means to remind us of the certainty of all of God's promises in Christ. And if you're afraid this morning, if you've been living this past week, or maybe even longer, out of fear, or of questioning whether or not God truly loves you, and you profess Christ, then you need to come to this table you need to have the testimony of the Spirit of Christ given to you again, that by His cross, you are not condemned. If you felt more like a slave this week than a child because you've tried to go back to the old way of life, of finding life through your own merits, come back to this table again and have the Spirit testify to you once more of uh, the crucified one to whom you are, you are united. If you are in Christ then partake of Christ once again and receive his promise that you truly are free, that you are free from condemnation, that you are free from sin and death, and that you are free to go forth living in a pleasing way to God. As we transition here, let's pray. Father, how could those words be true?